Welcome to Fizz Horizons, a series of podcasts and other resources bringing you interviews on some of the hottest topics affecting financial institutions. Economic uncertainty, ESG, geopolitical conflict, regulatory change, and digital transformation. We'll be covering it all. We'll be sharing the details that you need to know in order to stay ahead. Hello, and welcome to this podcast. I'm Robert Gardner, Director of Government Affairs at Hogan Lovells, based in our London office. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Aaron Cutler, in our Washington office. My role within the firm is to draw on my experience at the centre of government in the UK, working in the Cabinet office, and also working overseas in government, where I was also in central roles, advising leadership on international partnerships and economic diversification. At Hogan Lovells, my role is to bring a policy perspective to our legal advice, helping to turn that into business strategy for our clients, but also engaging on behalf of clients with policymakers in Westminster to ensure that decisions they make are heavily infused with an understanding of the regulatory and legal implications of those policies. Aaron, can I hand over to you to make your own introduction? Yes, thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to be with everyone today. I'm Aaron Cutler. I'm a partner in the Washington, D.C. office here at Hogan Lovells. I run our government relations and public affairs practice here in the U.S. I spend time on lobbying matters and congressional investigations. And I worked um, in government like Robert. I spent five and a half years working for the U.S. House of Representatives, most recently for House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, where I served as his senior advisor. We'd like to start with some questions. I'm going to turn over to Robert to start the discussion. Aaron, thanks very much. Well, one of the many things we have in common uh, is next year we both have elections and we have significant elections, not only in the cycle of our respective constitutions, but also given the political uncertainty that exists uh, at the moment. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the implications of those elections uh, on, on the US, on the UK, but also more broadly across the world. So let me, let me start by asking you, presidential elections, it's always a big moment for the US. Many of the rest of us watch with great interest. But what are you looking for and what do you think is particularly important for business and financial services in particular to be looking for leading up to those elections next year? So, great question. It's very early days. We're about 49, 50 weeks away from our general election here in the US. So, polls don't really matter yet. But people are starting to get nervous if you're a, a President Biden supporter because um, a lot of polling has come out showing President Biden with weak numbers. Um, just over the weekends, his lowest approval ratings of his presidency. Uh, a week or two ago, down in five out of the six swing states in a head-to-head matchup against former President Donald Trump. So, what I'm looking for is is the general sense of the American public. How are they feeling? And John, Donald Trump won in 2016 because the American public was very angry, wanted change, did not want a politician who had been there and spent decades you know, in public service or family in public service. They wanted an outsider. So now in 2023, we have the same sort of anger and frustration um, with the American people um, towards government, right? The, the wars that are going on now, Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, 
people in the U.S. are very upset and divided over, over especially what's happening in the Middle East. That could impact um, President Biden's reelect. It's very early to tell how that's going to shake out. We saw we looked to other internet to other countries as well, like we did in 2016 around the time of um, Brexit. Right, we saw that anger and that change vote, and it led to you know, change over here in the U.S. too. So we had the results in Argentina that were a bit of a surprise, and we have somebody who models themselves off of a Donald Trump. So, I'm not ready to predict that Donald Trump is going to win, but it is going to be a tight race next year, in my opinion. And how is that going to impact financial services, financial institutions? Well, I think the main thing to take away there is policy is personnel. So, whoever comes in in a new administration, even if it's a second term of a Biden administration, there will be new personnel coming into the regulators. And those personnel drive policy here in Washington. And so, um, you know, you're seeing new capital rules being pushed out for big banks. And that's being now slowed down because of some issues happening at the FDIC with the culture there and a recent Wall Street Journal report um, about some issues. And now there are congressional investigations of the FDIC head. So, again, policy is personnel. But, Robert, I'd be really interested to know, you know how the UK election is going to shake out, what you're thinking there, and how that's going to impact um, this financial services sector as well. Well, thanks, Aaron. And I've got a few follow-up questions, but that's kind of you to ask. I think you're absolutely right that the the last general election in the UK, which was in 2019, very much changed the electoral map in the UK. There was enormous frustration by many uh, over Brexit, uh, having voted in the referendum uh, overall for, for, uh, for Britain's withdrawal from the EU. Um, we saw years of Parliament um, having great difficulty moving forward on, on the Brexit vote. And by 2019, the, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, uh, offered a mantra of a vote for me and we will, quote, get Brexit done. And it was on that ticket that the Conservatives saw an enormous uh, electoral um, um, victory. Um, worth bearing in mind that, that the opposition party was led by probably the most far left-wing uh, leader for a generation, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, and, and the, the, the British public also rejected um, what he had offered, um, which, which gave support to Boris Johnson. So from, from Boris Johnson's perspective, it was a, 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 double, a double win that led to his enormous majority. But I think what's significant and what's relevant now is that parts of the country that had never voted Conservative, parts of the country that had not been Conservative for generations, were giving their support to a party which, fast forward four years, is now asking those parts of the country to continue to support the Conservatives. And that's why we've seen a government for the last four years that has um, been very keen to show its support for parts of the country that have not traditionally uh, lend their support to 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 the Conservative Party. Um, I think more generally and particularly for financial services, we're seeing a number of trends leading up to the election which will require uh, much closer detail and engagement by by financial services ahead of ahead of the vote. Uh, one of those is in the ways that regulations are being made. 
the relationship between government and regulators uh, and the ways in which um, third parties, business, those who are affected by the regulations are, are engaging to help shape them. The, the tendency of this government has been for the sector to self-regulate subject to um, founding principles laid out by government. And we've seen that across a, a number of sectors in the last few years. But where those sectors don't come in hard enough, government is not afraid to push back. And when it does, it will. It tends to bring in measures that don't work so well, are often draconian, are often quite all-encompassing and lead to all sorts of unintended consequences. But I think the other point that's that's relevant, and this often comes about where business has not been uh, as active as it should be or as it could be, is where um, politicians have delivered for the short-term individual benefit, thinking very much about that voter and how that voter is going to perceive policy today for them, rather than the longer-term national policy, which is much more difficult to justify at an individual level, but brings about greater stability, which leads to the prosperity that, of course, governments and voters want to see. And there we have a real dichotomy because the mantra of the Conservative Party is vote for them to bring about change, change being the longer term approach. But at the same time, we see ministers very much on social media announcing policy that clearly is about the individual today. Uh, and indeed in Keir Starmer's opposition party, which of course is, is, is 30 points ahead in the polls, we're also seeing the mantra of long-term decisions for the country, change uh, and new government, but still to see the detail of some of the policies uh, that will come about much nearer the election once manifestos are published. So there's still uncertainty in terms of what we'll see in the detail, but both parties are committed to detail for the long term because they need to demonstrate the results of that, even though in the short term, what the public want is, is much more individual for them now. But Aaron, I wanted to pick up, if I may, on a point you made, which is that it's difficult at this stage to look at polling between um, Biden and what could be Trump as, as his opponent in the election. But what I would be interested to hear is your thoughts on if it is Donald Trump who's standing, and indeed if he is elected as, as the Republican um, president, then do you think we'll see more of what we saw before or do you think we'll see a different type of Trump? Will he still be pursuing those relationships that help define him as being a different type of politician internationally? Uh, or do you think he'll go in a different way in response to the particular climate that, that might well see him elected? Right. That's a good question. A lot of people in Washington now are trying to think about what a second Donald Trump term would be. It'd be interesting because he wouldn't be able to stand for re-election. So it would truly be a one-term presidency. And there would have been four years in between his last administration and, and this one. Many think that he'll be quite aggressive on the regulatory front, trying to sort of purge some of the federal agencies from, again, from a, from a personnel perspective and put in more folks that kind of see the world the same way that President Trump does and his team. So you can see a lot of that change. I think on the international stage, yes, one of the major achievements of his presidency were the Abraham Accords. And I can see him wanting to continue that, especially given what's happening in the region. 
right? Ending the war, Russia, Ukraine, looking for signature achievements and wins will be something that President Trump tries to do in his um, second term, not spending time on relationships that aren't going to bear fruit or that would take years and years to really develop because there won't be time for that. He'll have four years from start to finish the end. And really in the U.S., you become a lame duck sort of in the last year of your presidency if it's winding down anyhow. So he'd really have two years to get things done. And if it were to be a Trump win, you'd imagine it'd be a good for the rest of the ticket as well. So that would mean the Senate looks like it could flip anyhow here, regardless of who's on the top of the ticket for Republicans, given West Virginia Senator Manchin's recent announcement about his retirement. So that seat looks very likely to flip. And then you're at a 50-50 even split. And so if President Trump were to win, 50-50 means Republicans don't need to win any more seats in the Senate besides West Virginia to take the majority, even though there are some states where they're competitive and they could win, like Montana. And in the House side, if it's a Donald Trump win, sort of the rising tide of Donald Trump could save the majority for House Republicans, because many feel that that majority is very vulnerable right now for a number of reasons, including redistricting and maps etc., not just in terms of the mood of the nation or, or candidates. So if President Trump were to come in and have the House and Senate majorities, you can imagine he would want to spend a lot of time focused domestically trying to get things done, legislation passed. Because right now, it's really hard to get legislation through because it's a divided Washington, right? President Biden does not have the House majority. And so when you do have the presidency in both houses, the same party, that's when you really want to drive your agenda through. So you can imagine there'd be some tax cuts, regulatory reform, et cetera. Last time around, President Trump passed tax reform, but it was focused on corporate tax reform. So this time around, maybe they would focus on individual tax reform, which many in America would, would appreciate very much. So happy to, to stop there. Um, I'm wondering, you know, if, if the same dynamics exist in the UK, will there be this, you know, monumental shift if the if 10 downing flips um, with the parliament, et cetera? I mean, will things really, really change or um, how will policy, um, you know, be impacted by that election? Well, one of the ways that the the opposition party, the Labour Party, Aaron, in the UK has has gained you know significant amount of support in the last few years is by uh, moving to the centre of the political spectrum by by bringing in voters who you know would would not have been attracted to the Labour Party in the twenty nineteen election, a Labour Party that was much further to the left, uh, but but are now seeing a party that's much more pro business. Uh, much more pro-enterprise that is adopting some business policies that would sit very comfortably in some of the more moderate conservative uh, governments. I think there's also a slight fatigue in in some with you know a, a, an incumbent government that has been in in power now for 13 years and and rode the turbulence of of the pandemic of Brexit um, a, a, and all that came with that as well reported. Um, but but I do think you know the 
the sense from the business community is that by and large it would be um, it would be continuity to see uh, a Labour Party come in, um, as it would from a business perspective. With you know, if Rishi Sunak obviously were to stay in power, we would see a con- continuity of his premiership. So I don't think we're on the brink of a revolution from a business perspective, from a financial services perspective. Um, at our general election, um, I see the US as being much more divided, much more polarised ahead of the election next year than we are politically in the UK. Where I do see divergence in the UK is certain topics that are of importance to business um, being seized for political purpose. And one example that comes to mind, and we discussed in in great detail fairly recently as a firm, uh, is around uh, ESG. Uh, We had our um, annual ESG Game Changers Summit where Deborah Meaden, one of the Dragon's Den Dragons came in and gave the keynote speech. And we looked at the ways that ESG as a topic um, is being embraced and promoted by business. Um, But there are some in Parliament who are using it as an opportunity to talk about anti-wokery and to talk about the need to protect against trends in business and elsewhere in society that are not relevant for some voters and need to be stopped. And I'd be interested to hear your perspective, because I know in the US um, it's a big debate, but certainly in the UK, um, we reckon that the solution to this, to this possible hijacking, uh, is to be very, very clear about what we mean by ESG and, and possibly even to stop talking about it as ESG, but to start talking about environmental, social and corporate governance, but actually to talk about the benefit that it brings because ESG is consumer-led. Businesses engage with ESG as approaches to business because it's what the consumer wants. Um, And I think it's incumbent on business to be able to articulate very clearly why embracing strategies around the environment, social, corporate governance bring benefit, not just to employees, not just to shareholders, but to those who have the power to vote, to support or otherwise, the politicians who would wish to see an end to some of these approaches. And and by explaining the benefit to them with regards to greater economic prosperity, greater strength, breadth of thought, greater opportunity and everything else that flows from these approaches, um, that is the way to win it over. But as we go into the election, I think that's one There's one point that I think business does need to do a lot more, and I think business stands to lose uh, if it doesn't, as I say, because of the political capital that can be made all too easily by those who wish to distance some of the substance of ESG from voters. But tell me in the States, because I know it's very divided, even on a state-by-state basis, isn't it? Oh, yeah. ESG is a very divisive topic here even though many probably don't know what the ESG stand for, right? I think the issue isn't here doing the right thing on the environment or for societal reasons or on the government governance side. The dividing factor here is the mandates, right? If government comes in with a heavy hand and tells companies you need to do X, Y, or Z, that is tough for a, a large percentage of the population here to, to swallow. But if, if companies just do it because it's the right thing, their consumers want it, it's good for business, drives profits, then there's no issue. I really think it's a communications issue here, ESG. Um, 
and government being a little bit heavy handed here and there. But yes, every state is different. You have some states' attorneys generals suing for not doing enough. Some state attorney generals thinking that um, you know certain companies have done too much. So it's a really tough position for many businesses here in the U.S. You feel like you're a ping pong ball because if you do too much and you're loud about it, then you could get a letter from Congress saying, hey, what are you guys doing? You're going too far on all this. You're bowing to European regulators who shouldn't be controlling what happens in the U.S., for instance. And if you don't do enough, you could get a letter from a Democrat chairman in the Senate saying, hey, why aren't you doing more? We expect you not to do X, Y, Z anymore because you know we're evolving as a society and we don't want to insure those businesses or finance those businesses anymore, even though it's legal to do so. So it's a really tough position to be in. Again, I think um, many general counsels and CEOs probably feel like a ping pong ball on this issue, and it's really difficult to navigate. So that issue is certainly a lightning rod. And as the campaign heats up, both congressional and presidential, I can imagine you'll hear more of that. And you mentioned, Robert, wokeism, right? I think it certainly gets lumped into that. Wokeism will be a big part of the stage for 2024 election, in my opinion. So there we are. Good communication. It's important as ever on both sides of the Atlantic and for something even as important as ESG. Well, Aaron, thank you very much. Look, there's lots more we could discuss here and indeed as a firm. We will, and including the uh, EU elections, which also take place uh, in 2024. I know that, Aaron, your team in the Government Relations and Public Affairs practice are going to be monitoring commitments made by both sides leading up to the election, looking in detail at what that means for our clients and how clients can engage. We're going to be doing exactly the same in the UK and across Europe. And we're also going to be offering some perspectives as a firm across those three jurisdictions uh, for where clients can take opportunity to engage uh, and help shape what the future might look like. Thank you all very much for joining us uh, and very much look forward to your participation in the next podcast in this series. Thank you very much. Visit engage.hoganlevels.com for the full Fizz Horizons 2024 report, more podcasts and other resources.